episode number five. Hello, friends. This is the Expected Returns Podcast. My name is Stephen Lutman. I am a real estate investor and agent in New York's capital region. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Thanks for giving it a try. Conversations here are focused primarily on real estate. However, we'll also touch on financial markets as well as economic data. If there's a topic you want covered or just have questions in general, best way to get them over to me is to fire a DM on Instagram at sjlincolnrealty. Now let's get to the show. There are a number of interesting topics in the news this week. However, where I want to start the show today is with alcohol. Now, February for me is going to be a dry month after the Super Bowl, which is probably why I have this on my mind. But for most people, myself included, your early 20s are really the height of your drinking abilities, desires, however you want to phrase that. But for a lot of people, first discovered drinking around this time. A given night could include you know, shots, mixed drinks, beers, any combination of either. But why? Because that's the stage of life that you're in. Learning and adapting at that point especially is a good thing. So, oh, I feel sick. You know, I better cut that out. Or, yeah, I, I don't really like how that makes me act. Going to stay away from that in the future. Now, obviously, as time passes, you move into different stages, right? So there are very few friends today that I can call and expect to hear a story about how they got blackout drunk on a random Wednesday that week. What was good fit for one stage of your life may be completely inappropriate for another. Earlier this month, for the first time, I sold an investment property that I myself owned. Now, for those who have listened to past shows know, I'm always pounding the table that buying and holding on to real estate is a really great thing to do. So me all of a sudden saying I'm a seller now is a bit hypocritical, right? No, and, and the reason is because while this particular building was a great fit for my goals back at the time of acquisition, it no longer was suited for what I'm trying to achieve today. Let's go over a few of the reasons why. So the first is gonna be ROT. Now, in the finance world, you'll hear people talk about ROI, return on investment, or ROE, return on equity, but ROT is gonna be return on time. As you get older, generally people increase the number of responsibilities that they have, and time becomes more and more important because you have less and less of it. So for someone like myself who self-manages their rentals, trips from the Saratoga area where I live down to Troy, which for those not local is about 10 miles north of Albany, is a big pain in the butt. So at one time, I viewed this as a good use of my time. However, now I no longer do. Reason number two is gonna be cut your losses. Now, this isn't to say this was a money losing transaction. It was a strong cash flowing apartment building. And when we say cash flow, that just means rent collection was higher than the sum of all expenses related to operating the property on a month to month basis. But if you enter into something expecting one outcome, and in reality, you get something different, rarely is being stubborn and holding on the correct decision. When I originally purchased the property, the city of Troy had just been awarded state grants for downtown revitalization. My goal was to get ahead of all that being implemented 
and hopefully property values would appreciate. Where my error ended up occurring was I just missed on the location. So yes, pockets of the city have become more desirable, just not where I bought. So the target was missed, time to move on. So we've covered time and acknowledging misses. The final reason I elected to sell came down to price. This property fit what I was financially able to do at the time. But one of the points I wanna stress here is that even if you make a blunder, like we talked about in cutting your losses, real estate investing is extremely forgiving. And what I mean by that is, you know, this quote mistake still appreciated to the point that sale proceeds can now be used to maybe do something a little bit bigger or maybe in a slightly better neighborhood that more closely aligns with where I want to be going forward. So something can be exactly what you need at one stage of your life, but you change, it changes, and it's okay to go in a different direction especially if that direction is forward. Next, we'll get into some new stories, but first a quick word from today's show sponsor. SJ Lincoln Realty, helping home buyers and sellers throughout the capital region, headquartered right in the village of Balsam Spa. I've been a real estate investor for the better part of a decade and operate the office here as the licensed broker. The best way to connect is to email Stephen at sjlincoln.com or visit sjlincoln.com slash book a call if you want to chat about what being an investor actually looks like or are thinking about buying or selling in the capital region let's have a conversation again email stephen at sjlincoln.com or sjlincoln.com slash book a call now back to the show This past week, Saratoga County supervisors held what was called a public listening session on the impact of short-term rentals are having on the area, specifically upon lodging options like hotels and motels. One estimate referenced during the discussion was there are 900 Airbnb-type options during the summer, which on the surface seems wildly too high, but Regardless, the issue at hand is that all of the standard providers, anything like, you know, the Hilton on Broadway, all the way down to, you know, small bed and breakfast, all pay a 5% occupancy tax. Whereas if you book, let's say, a VRBO or similar platform, because it falls under the current four-unit threshold, you avoid that 5% charge. So, Should this be the case? If you run a short-term rental, should you pay less in taxes than a company down the street does? Of course not. Everyone should be playing on a level playing field, and whoever offers the better product should win. No group should be operating essentially with a 5% head start. The larger question here is, should short-term rentals be allowed in the first place? As someone who operates a small Airbnb, I struggle with this. If you buy a home in a single family residential neighborhood, should you be able to essentially run a business out of it? The case can easily be made that no, you shouldn't. Instead, you should have bought something commercially zoned that should function as a hotel normally does. 
a slight tangent here, but I occasionally get calls from folks interested in buying something for the sole purpose of using it as an Airbnb. And my advice to them is always the same. Buy in areas that would support a long-term rental in the event short-term rentals were no longer an option. If legislation changes and you need to pivot to, let's say, year-long leases, financially, can you still make this property work? So Lake George, not long ago, had a temporary halt on short-term rentals operating within the village. As a host, you are always a few local politicians away from being put out of business. A few too many neighbors complain or the hotel lobby contributes to the right re-election campaigns. Call me crazy, but if I'm a short-term rental host, and I am, I want to get ahead of this. Encourage the platforms to collect the appropriate taxes before it escalates and they shut us all down. But maybe I'm just being conspiratorial. From something that makes total sense to something that makes almost no sense at all, there's a national radio host out there by the name of Clay Travis. Now, he's mostly a sports guy, but he also has one of the largest conservative talk shows in the entire country. So he floated the idea this past week that in response to pandemic-related financial damages, the United States should voluntarily default on its debt payments to China. This is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard someone with a large platform say. Now let's give this some context. Our country spends a lot of money. It receives this money in one of two ways. Revenues, which are going to be taxes collected from you and me, and by taking on debt, which are treasury sales. So the U.S. currently owes $30 trillion to those who have previously purchased treasuries. And these are essentially IOUs for future repayment. Roughly a quarter of that $30 trillion are purchased by foreign nations. So fun fact, the country that owns the most of our debt, do you want to take a guess? It's actually Japan. But not far behind is China at $1.1 trillion. Those we elect love, love, love to borrow money. And the reason they keep being able to do so is because our borrowing costs are so cheap. The 10-year treasury touched 2% this week. And the reason it's so cheap is because we pay people back. The minute you tell China you intend to pay them even one penny less than what is owed, that 2% borrowing rate immediately goes to 20. Suddenly, we can no longer fund our military. Government employees don't receive paychecks. Social security reserves evaporate. For kicks, I googled this topic, and luckily it doesn't seem to have any real traction. But if you have a large audience, ideally, your takes would be a bit more well thought out and well researched before putting something like this out to the world. But yeah, it's a terrible idea. Next, let's do a quick summary of the capital region real estate market. For the month of January, the median sale price, and we prefer median over average. If you think back to middle school math, you know, mean, median, mode, the median reduces the impact on outliers to either side. So 
The median sale price was $250,000, up just about 9% from the same period last year. But here's the crazy part. Homes available for sale was down 48%. So four to six months of housing inventory is traditionally considered healthy. And what that means is if not one additional home were to come on the market, given the current velocity of home sales, how long would it take buyers to absorb the current stock? So four to six months is ideally where we want to be. Well, we're at 1.4. So you can kind of get a taste for how short of inventory of housing we currently are. A few comments here. Um, if you're looking to buy a house, your sales pitch needs to be super, super tight. And what I mean is that when you submit an offer, it's overwhelmingly likely you're going to be up against some form of competition. So from the seller's point of view, what is the value proposition? Why should they go with you over someone else? Are you paying all cash? Great. But most of us aren't. So is your financing lined up? Having a pre-approval included with your offer is about as mandatory as it gets today. Is your home inspector ready to go? How long of an inspection period do you need? These are all things that you can and should be doing on the front end. So we started the segment with some stats. Well, time on market, no surprise, is also down, meaning you don't have the luxury of dilly-dallying. If you aren't already receiving new listing alerts straight from the MLS, shoot me a DM or an email and I'll get you set up because if something comes on market, your goal should be to tour that property within 24 to 48 hours. That's it for today. The last part of the show is always when I lean on you, the listener, for your support. If you or someone that you know in the capital region has a real estate related need, let's connect whether it's buying or selling, or just want to learn a little bit about investing, email Stephen at sjlincoln.com or visit sjlincoln.com slash book a call. If that's not doable, but you did happen to get something out of this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Email it to them, text it, and just say, hey, this made me think about you, or hey, remember when we talked about something similar? Either one would be a big help to me. Again, that email is stephen at sjlincoln.com, website sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. 